Good morning. Thank you, Casey and worship team. Well, I'm going to throw you another curveball this morning. We're in the Gospel of John, but this morning uh, I want to look at uh, probably the most sobering truth in all of the Bible and something that um, we consider, if it's not in the text, we're working through verse by verse at least once a year, every year. And so this morning I think it's a good time, given what Jesus said in John 5, 29 last week, to look at this text this morning in Scripture. So take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to Hebrews chapter 10. And today we'll be look at, <clears throat> excuse me, verses 26 to 31, and I've titled my sermon, Sinners in the Hands of the Living God. And so you probably know, well, those of you who've been in church for a long time, we're talking about the doctrine of hell this morning. The Bible says a lot about this. Jesus says a lot about this himself. So what are we to make of that? And there's nothing more important, I don't think, than our eternal destiny. And Jesus, uh, Jesus that's why he came. And of course, what he mentioned is he finished up. We finished up verse 29 last week, John chapter 5. We'll look at this. But let us hear now the word of the Lord is inspired by a spirit. I'll read verses 26 to 35 of Hebrews chapter 10. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. And a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is the inspired and inerrant word of God. May he add his blessings to this reading. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, there is no more sobering passage in all of Scripture than that which we've just read. God, there is no more sobering doctrine than that of your wrath against sin and the eternal punishment of those who will reject you. So, Father, give us grace this morning. Give me grace to give it the solemnity that it deserves and also make clear the grace that has come to us in Christ Jesus who bore hell's wrath in our place so that we would not have to. And, God, I pray you'd work in our hearts Lord, this is a sermon for those who are lost. May they heed it. And it's also a, loss, a sermon for the found. May they heed it, Lord. I pray you'd bind your word to our hearts and give us grace to love you and glorify you. And if those who don't know, those who don't know you're here today, grant them grace to flee to you, Father. Work in us now for your glory. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, back in John chapter 5, Jesus said this. We worked through verse 29 last week, and Jesus said this. this is why, why we're doing this this morning, kind of breaking off to, to examine this doctrine. Jesus said verse 29. Let me go back to verse 28, you know, all that complete sentences. He said, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. In other words, at the end of time, there's going to be a resurrection of the dead. You will raise, rise from the dead, bodily, physically, and come out, come out of the grave just like Lazarus, those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And here it is. 
And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. There's that word judgment, that, wo that word that drove Martin Luther, almost drove him crazy. We celebrate the Reformation this month, almost drove him crazy, but it drove him to Christ, right? Judgment. Well, on July 8th, 1741, for those of you who are challenged in math, my UGA math tells me that's 281 years ago, long time ago, a man named Jonathan Edwards preached what is, almost beyond the shadow of a doubt, the most famous sermon ever preached in this country. In fact, it's so famous, we studied it in high school as a, as a, a form of literature. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, preached it at Enfield, Connecticut. He concluded with this appeal to the lost. I want this to be in your mind this morning as we walk through this, again, very solemn and sobering doctrine. He said, therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ, that is, unbelievers, if you're here today, you don't know Jesus Christ, who's Lord and Savior, he's talking to you. Let everyone who is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Let every one of you fly out of Sodom. Haste and escape for your lives. He said, look through, look, look not behind you, escape to the mountain lest ye be consumed. And of course, we know, we've studied church history, know that hundreds and hundreds of people came to Christ through the preaching of this sermon. They preached it numerous times, and, and the Second Great Awakening was God launched the Second Great Awakening, mainly through the preaching of Jonathan Edwards and others there in New England, and that bled over into the South, and of course, led to the Second Great Awakening later, one of the greatest revivals in the history of this country. I mean, Edwards could barely get through the sermon, for many would interrupt him, shouting, what must I do to be saved? And who can blame them if this is true? If the Bible is true, if hell is real, and heaven is at stake every Sunday morning as we say it is here at Christ Fellowship Baptist Church, who can blame them? So must we. Many were converted. But in recent years, hell has disappeared from the church. Not just the culture, but from the church. It's disappeared, I would argue, from the Christian faith. It's been edited, or use a good, good uh, modern term, it's been canceled. Hell is no more in many self-professed evangelical churches. David Lodge writes, at some point in the 1960s, hell disappeared. No one can say for certain what, when this happened. First, it was there, and then it wasn't. Different people became aware of this disappearance of hell at different times. Some realized that they had been living for years as though hell did not exist without having conscience, consciously registered its disappearance. Others realized that they had been behaving out of habit as though hell were still there, though in fact they had ceased to believe in its existence years ago. On the whole, the disappearance of hell was a great relief. And in a vast understatement, he says, though it brought a different set of problems. And in fact, it did. We don't preach hell. This is why I'm preaching on this today, because the Bible, Jesus said far more about hell than he did heaven. That's our Lord and Savior, right? Precious Jesus, meek and mild, taught more about hell than he did about heaven. And we know more about hell than we do heaven because of what he taught. 
More typical of the view of the church today is what Clark Pinnock wrote. He wrote, I consider the concept of hell as endless torment in body and mind and outrageous doctrine, a theological and moral enormity, a bad doctrine of tradition which needs to be changed. Everlasting torment is intolerable from a moral point of view because it makes God into a bloodthirsty monster who maintains an everlasting Auschwitz, think of Nazi Germany, for victims who he does not even allow to die. That's the more common view. Not in the world, yes in the world, but also in the church today. Now, we've got to deal with this passage of Hebrews in context Let's make it a pretext, right? And so this is one of the four major or really five major warning passages in Hebrews. And we preach through Hebrews here. Christ Fellowship, I think 2019, 2020, 2021, a long time in Hebrews. And it was glorious, at least I thought it was. And uh, greatly edifying during, during the COVID crisis anyway. But this is, this is the, 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 at least the fourth uh, of, the, um, of, of the warning passages in it comes on the heels of the author's three admonitions in response to the person and work of Christ in which he exhorts believers to worship him, to worship a, a life of holding fast to the truth and lie, a life of love and good works in the body of Christ like we try to do here at Christ Fellowship. In today's text, he warns again those who have heard the gospel and that is most of you, which is why it's so pertinent to us, it's a warning to those who have heard the gospel, or at least this morning you're going to hear the gospel if you're listening. They might have even responded favorably to it. You have some affinity for the gospel, say, you know, I like church, or I like, yeah, that's true. You give a, at least a, uh, you have a head knowledge of it. You give some kind of uh, at least affirmation of it. May have even walked the aisle, something like that. But then they've walked away. They've walked away from Christ. They've rejected Christ. They're living as if heaven isn't real, hell isn't real, and there's really nothing at stake here in this text and in life. We just die and we rot, right? They live as if this is all there is, and it's really the most common view, isn't it? So it's addressing those who heard the gospel. Many in America have heard the gospel. And I'm going to tell you something. I don't like preaching on hell. You say, why do you do it every year? Because we need to hear it. The lost need to hear it. But the found need to hear it. The lost need to hear it because they can flee from the wrath to come. The found need to hear it because you need to remember what it is you've been rescued from. And the righteousness you have that has saved you and what your Savior bore at Calvary. What was happening at Calvary. And so, beloved, let's take a deep breath this morning as we wade into this and consider such a horrifying reality. Because if it's true then that, there's, there's a certain way we must live and certain things we must do with Christ, right? And so let's look at this text this morning. First we see in verse 26 the deliberate, what I'm calling the deliberate or the willful sinner. And sinners today, we've, we've become much more bold-faced in our sinning. We talked about this a bit in Sunday school, how we'll talk about abortion as if just killing our children. We'll use that language even 22 years ago. You wouldn't hear that, right? But we're much more bold-faced now. We'll say, no, we're... We're, we're, we're deliberately sinful. We reject Christ and all that Christian stuff. He says that, the writer of Hebrews says that, under the inspiration of God's Spirit, that to reject Christ is to trample the blood of Christ. So how do we get to the wrath of God? Well, we're getting to the wrath of God, trampling the blood of Christ. He says, for those who go on sinning deliberately after having heard the truth of the gospel, and that's who he's writing to. 
They'd heard the truth. They'd received the truth. Many of them were Christians. I think he's writing mainly here to Christians. But they've turned against God. They've rejected the gospel. The author, I think, has apostates in view here. They grew up in church. Maybe their family was in ministry. Who knows? They've deliberately rejected the gospel of Christ. And the way, the truth, and life, the only pathway to heaven, we believe. No matter whether they're apostates or they've never claimed the name of Christ, it doesn't matter. They're without excuse. And this morning, friends, friend, if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ, you aren't without excuse. This sermon, hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, will make you without excuse. You'll little stand before God and say, you know, I'm a good person. And I heard that. And I just didn't, the guy didn't make it plain, which is entirely possible, right? The pastor, he didn't make it very plain. You're going to be without excuse. I was a good person. I paid my bills. I, you know, I was nice to people. There's a niceness movement now. And I mean, I'm all for being nice. We should be nice to each other, right? Do you see that? Just be nice. See that on the t-shirts? But that niceness won't save anybody. But I think we mistake that for salvation, don't we? Without excuse, nothing will save them for it. He goes on to say, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. In other words, you've rejected the only way you can escape from the wrath to come. The only way you can be saved, you've rejected it. And there's no longer a sacrifice for you. And all your good works will only serve to condemn you. In October, which around here we sometimes call Reformation Month, there's a good time to talk about this, isn't it? How do faith and works, how do they, how do they jive? Well, save, save, grace, uh, grace alone saves you. Faith alone in Christ alone, not works. So there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, no matter how nice you are or good you are. So these people were fully aware that Christ's sacrifice is the only sacrifice that will remove their sins. So there's no other place for them to turn for the forgiveness of their sins. What is left for them? Well, what is the outcome for them? What is the outcome for every sinner in history who's rejected Christ? Well, read it again, 27 to 31. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That's what awaits you. That's why Edwards was so uh, passionate about preaching the gospel in, in, uh, back almost 300 years ago. And we should be now. And why, why we are so passionate about this. Not because we enjoy talking about God's wrath and condemning people to hell. And the, as one uh, pundit on CNN put it, the eternal barbecue. No, because it is real. And the greatest lie that devil ever told is it's not real, like what Clark Pinnock said in the earlier quote. A fearful expectation of judgment. That's what's left for them. And so we see here the end of the deliberate sinner. Verses 30, 27 to 31, God's eternal wrath. All who reject Christ will face an angry God when they reach eternity. Make no mistake. And you're, gonna, you're saying, why? What's he so angry about? We're going to get there. That's a great question. And by the way, I'm happy for the Christian faith to be questioned all the way from top to bottom because I believe as a worldview and as, a tr as truth claims it can flat stand up to anything that, that the other worldviews have to offer. Even the teaching on the doctrine of hell, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? If God is who he claims to be. All who reject Christ will face an angry God. Dreadful here means terrifying. And on that dreadful day of judgment, that payday someday that I often quote here, that payday someday that's coming to each one of us, we will stand before our maker. The one who rejects Christ will stand before the just judge and will be found guilty of high treason against his creator. 
will receive the sentence of eternal punishment in hell for the crimes. Because let's face it, we come into this world as criminals, don't we? We need to be saved from our sins. David said, in sin my mother conceived me. We're sinful from the beginning. People say, well, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, there really and truly are no good people, are there? My question is, why do good things happen to bad people like me? Why did God save a wretch like me? That's the question John Newton asked in that famous hymn, right? Or that he pondered that, that, that glorious truth. But it's going to be terrifying. So we found guilty of high treason and punished for the crimes. What will this judgment look like? It will be a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. This is hell. That's very plain. You don't need advanced Greek grammar to understand that. And there's no Greek, uh, you know, in the Greek it means it's no. no. You can't explain this away. Either it's true or it's not. And what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it, beloved? Terrifying, isn't it? A fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Well, I'm not an enemy of God. Well, it depends. Psalm 5, 4 through 6. The writer of the psalmist writes, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. God is holy. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. And here it is. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the psalmist writes, You hate, talking to God, speaking of God, you hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. God is holy. He can't even look upon sin, Malachi tells us, right? He can't, he can't even look. Sin can't even be in his presence. This is why heaven's for people made perfect by the blood of Jesus Christ, right? But he says, you hate all evildoers. You know, we have such a squishy gospel, don't we? We preach in, in churches now. So it's such a uh, just very um, um, sentimental, a lot of sentimentality. Because this is hard. I mean, I get it and I don't get it. <laughs> This is hard. Like I said, I don't like this, but I feel the altness of preaching this and teaching on this. Not because we're just full of fire and brimstone and we love that over Christ's fellowship. No, 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 no. Because it's in the Bible. Because God inspired it and we must pay attention to it uh, lest we lose our own souls. Psalm 7, two chapters over, 7 verses 11 to 13. He writes, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Listen to this. If a man does not repent, turn from his sins, God will whet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Friend, there's a very real sense if you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord, then your biggest problem is God. It's your biggest problem. God will repay them. God is in, feels indignation every day against sin because he is perfect and he's prepared for sinners his deadly weapons. Judgment. Judgment's coming. We're a few minutes closer to judgment than we were when I started this sermon, aren't we? When, what day is it? Is, is it today, that day? God will repay them. We learned back in Hebrews verse 30, Hebrews 10, it's an Old Testament teaching. He quotes uh, Deuteronomy 32, 35, vengeance is mine, I will repay. This is not just some New Testament thing or we don't have two gods here, an angry God in the Old Testament, gracious God in the New Testament. I mean, Jesus spoke about hell. 
No, no, they, they both teach the same thing, both testaments. Deuteronomy 32, 36, the Lord will judge his people. And we see this, don't we, all through, all through the Old Testament of the children of Israel, how they, they sinned, they worshiped idols, and God judged them, and they repented, they restored, and they worshiped idols, and they repented, and God judged them, repented, they restored, and on, and on, and on, and on it goes in this vicious cycle. And it shows what? That Israel could not do away the sin. A true son had to come and pay the penalty for sins. But there's always judgment. Sin brings judgment. Rejection of Christ, rejection of the mediator, which we need, brings judgment. Why is rejecting God such a crime? Well, we have here in verses 28, back in Hebrews 10, verses 28 and 29, an argument from lesser to greater. He says, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, Old Testament, dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And now he says, here's the, that's the lesser, here's the greater. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? So if Old Covenant Israel, if they were scandalous in their rejection of the law of Moses, think about how all those of us who, lived on, who live on the other side of the cross, the one who's promised in the Old Testament has come, has been fulfilled, and now think about how much worse the punishment is that we deserve because we have rejected the way, the truth, and life, the one who comes to the Father and know the only way to heaven. We've rejected him. So it's criminal. What is the nature of their crime? Well, they flagrantly reject three things here. They spurn the Son of God. They deny that Christ is the Son of God. I've been studying this in John. He claims that for himself. The Father claims that for him. They have, secondly, profaned the blood of the covenant. They deny the saving work of Christ on the cross. They say, it's, it, it's of no effect. It was a, a fool's errand. Why did he go there and die? Thirdly, says they profaned the blood of the covenant. By which he was sanctified. And this, this speaks of a person who was set apart or identified as an active participant in the covenant community, but who denied the knowledge of the truth. What is the knowledge of the truth? That is the person and work of Jesus Christ in our daily lives applied to us. That's the knowledge, that's the truth. It's the truth. We claim as Christians to have the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The definite article is very important there. We're very particular about that for good and sound and biblical theological reasons, aren't we? The way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. One way for all people, for all time. How more fair could it be, right? That's, 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 how, Jesus, that's how Jesus left it. And fourthly, he's outraged the spirit of grace. They've blasphemed the Holy Spirit by which Jesus in Matthew 12, 32 calls the unpardonable sin. I think this is the unpardonable sin. Blasphemed the Spirit, saying that's not the work of God. I don't believe that. I mean, the unpardonable sin is, at the end of the day, unbelief. If you're a Christian, you can't commit the unpardonable sin. I've had lots of people worry that come to me and say, I think I've committed the unpardonable sin. I've had that happen. Doug, as a pastor, you've probably had that too. And say, no, no, if you're a believer, you can't. You've believed, you've come to Christ, you've not rejected and said, well, the work of this is not the work of the Spirit, this is the work of something else, the devil. No, no, no. And this is all consistent with what the writer of Hebrews says back in 927. And just as is it appointed for man once to die, after that comes the judgment. The judgment. Is the doctrine of hell a... A, a biblical doctrine, absolutely. 
There's basically three views in the church now. There's or, or in the church and, and, and in, in the culture about hell and heaven and eternity. One, there's universalism. And that is that everyone is saved. And that's the most popular view. You know, you see a funeral in Hollywood, some really wicked person dies and they just, you know, they, they preach them into heaven, right? They do as well as any Southern Baptist does down in, you know, preaching a funeral. It's right in the, man, they're up there in that great acting uh, theater in the sky and they're with so-and-so and so-and-so. And you think, man, if they're getting in, the whole world's getting in, right? Because it's universalism. Everyone will be saved. Rob Bell, in his book, Love Wins, a Time article, he said, he told Time Magazine, I have long wondered if there is a massive shift coming in what it means to be a Christian. Something new is in the air. And the new thing in the air was he rejected God's wrath for a God of love defined by sort of sentimental erotic categories. Very strange. But something new is coming. His book was new. Novel, embraced universalism, formerly believed in hell. Second view is annihilationism. And uh, Clark Pinnock, I quoted earlier, believes this. All who reject Christ will just be annihilated. They'll be burned up and they will cease to exist. We use Matthew 10, 28 to 33. Fear him who can destroy the body and soul in hell forever. They use that as a proof text. It's very flimsy, very, very, very flimsy uh, evidence for that. I don't think that's true. I think Jesus spoke more about hell than he did heaven for a reason. Because here's the biblical view. According to the New Testament, hell is, we got six things here. One, prepared for Satan and his angels along with all who reject Christ. Revelation 29 and 10 says, let's flip to Revelation 20. Verses 9 and 10. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And you say, well, that comforts me a little. That's just devil, Satan and his angels. But scripture is clear. It's also for all those who rejected Christ. Because think about it. The devil is what? He's one of God's creatures. God made him. And if a loving God is able to send the devil into perpetual suffering, he is capable of doing the same thing to human beings. Verses 11 to 15 in, in, in Revelation 20. At the end of time, he's thinking of judgment. He's describing the judgment here. Uh, John the Revelator, who wrote the Gospel of John, he said, Then I saw a great white throne, and him was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, awaiting judgment. And the books were opened. Then another book was opened, the books of history and the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades, that's the grave, gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, that's those who, the elect, the redeemed from all the ages, the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Friends, this is no laughing matter, is it? And that language is just so crystal clear. It's prepared for Satan and his angels, but... And all who reject Christ, secondly, it's eternal. 
Matthew 18, 8, Jesus speaks of being cast into eternal fire. And there's a, a symmetry between heaven being eternal, eternal bliss, and hell being eternal. So Jesus said they're both eternal, eternal life, <laughs> or eternal judgment. Matthew, or Mark 9, 48, Jesus speaks of hell as a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Imagine that. You leave this life and five seconds after you leave this life, you find yourself in hell and you will be there paying for your own sins forever and ever and ever because that's how scandalous your sins are and my sins are in the face of a holy God. It's tough, isn't it? Tough to talk about it because people are going there. It'll be thirdly conscious. You'll be awake. The anguish and the torture, whatever it is, will be felt. There'll be, I believe, degrees of punishment in hell. That's another sermon for another time, but it describes as eternal fire, fire and darkness. It's in various places, it's described as fire and darkness. It's maybe metaphorical language or something that's beyond the ability of human language to even describe. It's infinitely awful, infinitely terrible and terrifying. I think there could be fire and darkness and different, all kinds of different miseries in hell. I do think the language is somewhat literal. I take it that way. I think we have good warrant, biblical warrant for that. So it's conscious. It's fourthly, separation from God. Matthew 25, 41, Jesus says, at the judgment to those whom, whom he does not know, he says, depart from me. Depart from me. I never knew you. He knows about you. He knows all things. He's omniscient, but he didn't know you relationally. Will you hear, the, you hear that on that day? I pray not. I pray not. Today's the day of salvation, friend. From the good of God, we will be separated. Those who are there will be separated from any possibility of right relationship with God. But it's not complete separation from God. God will be there. God is omnipresent. God will be there not in his love but in his wrath. Because that's what hell is, a pouring out of God's wrath on those who have rejected him forever and ever. I mean, the main problem in hell will be the presence of God in his wrath. That'll be the main problem we face. The most awful thing, separation from the love of God, separation from, separation from any hope of salvation. And lastly, it'll be final. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and I won't look at that, but Luke 16, 19 to 31. Read that this afternoon shows that there's a gulf fixed between heaven and hell. And there'll be no passage between the two. No second chance. So procrastination for us is foolishness. The worst thing you could do today is to procrastinate. Is to not deal with God today. Settle eternity today. Today is the day of salvation. You can say, well, tomorrow I'm going to turn over a new leaf. Or, I'll, you know, I'll get right with God. I'm going to grow up. I'm young now. I'm going to grow up. And I'll, you know, I, I won't want to have as much fun then because we all know Christianity is no fun. And it's just a bunch of rules and all that stuff. And so we want to have fun. Now, when I get older, I will turn to God. And there's no guarantee you'll ever get a chance. There's no guarantee God will deal with you, will draw you. He has no We are not, he is not in our debt to draw us, to convict us. He owes us nothing but his eternal wrath it's great folly to procrastinate so I'll get right with God tomorrow the parable of the rich fool, fool in Luke 12 just before not long before the 
uh, the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. This man says, I've, I've got, I filled my barns, I filled my houses, I've got more than enough, I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. And Jesus said, Why? you fool, this very night your life will be required of you. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow. You die. It's appointed unto man once to die. Once to die. And after that comes the judgment. You're going to die. No matter how young you are. And it may be in 60 years or 70 years or 80 years. I don't know. And you don't know. But you don't know. You don't know. As most of you know, I buried my brother. I preached his funeral three months ago. And I could see over behind his his, uh, his grave, the grave of a young man I knew in my hometown who was 28. And off to the right, I could see the grave of a young girl who was 17. Cancer took her. He was killed in a car wreck. Cancer took her in about three or four weeks. I remember, like it was yesterday, back in the 1990s. It's pointed at a man wants to die. I can't be serious. I don't think there's enough. I'm not able to be as serious as about this as it even needs to be. So it's final. Today may very well be the last day you have to repent and turn to Jesus Christ. Improve on it, as the old Puritan said. It means do it. Flee to him. We're going to get to the good news of the gospel. We're going to, we're going to land there. This is a lot of bad news. This is a, this is a whole heap of bad news. In it. We're going to get to the good news. It'll be final. And inevitable for if you do not trust in Christ. And I hear your question, maybe some of you. You may say, well, how could a loving God? My God is a loving God. How in the world, preacher, could you stand there like some kind of ignoramus and say this loving God is going to cast people into hell, the eternal barbecue, at the end of time? That is just ludicrous. Well, I'm glad you asked. And that is a good question. And I think Scripture gives clear answers. I think first we need to think about the justice of God. The justice, that's a, uh, you know, that's a really popular word of the culture, it isn't. We, want, we always want justice. To which I always say, uh-uh, I don't know if you want justice. <laughs> God, give me what's fair. Oh, hold on a minute. <laughs> hold on. I don't think you want what's fair. You know, the justice of God. From what are we being saved? Well, the wrath of God. The wrath of God will be visited justly on those who remain, what? Hostile to him, his enemies. Ultimately, ultimately we are saved. Are you ready for this? from God we're saved by God from God we're saved both by him and from him and the worst crisis a person could ever face is the judgment of a holy God verse 31 it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God who will judge us in perfect righteousness I mean every human being will be visited by a just judge who will judge us according to what we've earned according to our merit what have you done with your life I mean, the only thing we have earned is perfect punishment. That's the only thing our good works has earned, right? We are at ease in Zion. And in today's church, with the love of God being preached, I believe, unbiblically, sentimentally, because if much contemporary preaching and teaching in, church, in, in evangelical churches is true, then Jesus taught falsely, and there will be punishment as well as gracious rewards, and that hell was created for the devil and his angels and no one else, or maybe not even them. The scripture teaches it that hell is prepared for those who willingly participated with them. 
God is a just judge, not a corrupt judge. Well, what about the love of God? You didn't say anything about that. I'm getting to that. Is a God who punishes people for eternity for their rejection of him a loving God? And that's the question that this generation is asking. Good question. Good question. My generation asks, is it true? Your generation, young people, you're asking, is it good? Is it good? Is he good? What about the love of God? Is a God who punishes people for eternity for the rejection of him a loving God? Well, in order to define God's love rightly, you have to understand his justice and vice versa. Think about this. Let's use Hitler. We all agree that Hitler is one of the most evil figures in world history, right? Use Hitler. What if a judge brought in Hitler and said, Adolf, take your seat? And they tried him and he said, I killed 20 million Jews, those nasty subhuman people. Exterminated all of them in my crematoriums, 26 million and maybe 20 million, really and truly. And what if the judge said, you know, I get that. You don't like those people. And you, you know, you, what a man does in the freedom of his own, uh, own uh, crematorium, that's his business. And so I love you this much. I love you so much, I'm going to let you go. Man, I just love you, Adolf. You're great and wonderful. I know, I know you did some wrong, but man, you're, you're, you're a good person. You realize this is the argument you hear all the time about God's wrath. Would that be a just judge? Would you be in favor of that? If I took a vote, I think it would be 100%. You'd say, no, that's a corrupt judge. He doesn't understand justice. Well, see, love, understand. I mean, the most loving thing he can do is what? Is to punish him. And the truth is, we're all outside of Jesus Christ. We're just as guilty as Adolf Hitler for crimes against our, our sovereign Lord and rejection of him. So we can't put him and say, well, I'm glad I'm not like him. Thank God I'm not like him. At least I'm not Hitler. Well, the truth is we're all under God's wrath for good reason because you have to understand love and justice together. It would be unjust for him to let say, just go and sin no more. Hitler, well, of course, none, none of us are for that. Well, it'd be loving for him to punish. I mean, even what if Hitler theoretically was punished and saw his error of his ways and got right with God? I mean, that's a loving thing, right? Love and justice have to be understood together. I mean, what if the judges of this world refused to punish those who committed evil crimes? That's a just verdict? No. God And God would not be good if he did not punish wickedness. By definition, he would cease to be God. He's perfect. He's holy. He's righteous. He's just. And if he abandoned his own righteousness, he would abandon his justice. And he would abandon his love. The problem of hell is not the badness of God. The problem is the goodness of God because of the goodness of God he punishes evildoers in hell remember the good judge who punished Hitler it's a good judge right this is the good judge friend you will get what you have coming to you at the end of time no matter what he's told us here right you'll get what's coming to you you'll get what you deserve there's not going to be anybody in hell who doesn't deserve it and the thing is here's the reality those of us who will be in heaven we don't deserve heaven God is not under compulsion to save one single person. He'd be just to cast me off in hell forever and ever. It'd be just and right and good. The problem of hell is not the badness of God, it's the goodness of God. Friend, do you think you'll escape the 
judgment of God. I mean, Scripture here is addressing those who say, I don't need Christ. This Christian stuff is just not true. You think you'll escape the judgment? Are you counting on that? Just being able to plead your own righteousness before a holy God? Is that your hope? He'll be merciful despite your refusal to embrace his son. You know, I didn't like Jesus. He's not just all right with me, but I was a good person. I went against you, but you were. I mean, God doesn't invite sinners to repent. He commands it. It's a command of God. It's not a, it's not a suggestion. It's a command. Repent and be reconciled to God. And that's, that's our plea with you today here from, from this pulpit is repent and be reconciled. Turn from your sins and turn to Christ for forgiveness of sins, your only hope of eternal life. He doesn't demand, invite them to be saved. He demands it. But I'm afraid many preachers today cry peace, peace, where there is no peace. The most popular preacher in America, televangelist, multi-billionaire was asked, do you believe in sin? Why don't you preach sin? He said, you know, that's just not up for me to decide. I just leave that to somebody else. I stay in my lane. That sin stuff is, I try to be positive. Try to give them a positive message. It's not a sermon anymore. It's a message. Well, I got a message. God's got a message for him at the end of time. And those who follow that false gospel. And we must not buy into that. No matter how good it sounds to our ears, our, to our, our ears that have been uh, shaped by secular thinking or informed or influenced by. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living But there's good news. Oh, that's terrible news, but there's good news. There's good news. There's good news. What you need is a lawyer, a mediator because of your sins. And you have one. God sent one. He sent his son. That's the point of Jesus coming, right? Jesus came to rescue sinners from the hands of an angry God. We love to sing here. And one of my favorite hymns to sing, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. There's rescue. There's hope. There's a sure and settled hope for you. Beloved, Christ came to rescue sinners from the hands of an angry God. There's knowledge of the truth back in verse 26. That's what he's talking about. It's the truth of God's love for sinners as set forth in Scripture in places like John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life the invitation is whosoever will may come because God so loved the world this dirty rotten stinking filthy cosmos that's rebelled against him God so loved that world those people that he sent his son his spotless son the sinless savior to die in your place to pay the uh, debt you owed but could never pay and would never pay he bore all of hell's wrath in the place of sinners. All you have to do is repent of your sins and trust in him today. For his death at Calvary and his resurrection from the dead as historical fact, the one who's fully God and fully man who he claims to be, he bore the wrath we deserved in our place. Love First Peter 2, 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep. 
But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. There's mercy, there's escape. Because he came and died and bore our sins in his body on the tree. Repent and trust in him today. Don't leave here till eternity settled. What if we delay? So only think about it. Well, we're storing up wrath for ourselves. Romans 2, 4 to 11 says, every day the person, re- person rejects Christ, he's storing up more and more and more wrath. It's going to be worse on you every day. As believers, we have to ask ourselves, in what ways do we live as if hell is not real our own selves? Do we live as if God won't judge, be it there's not a judgment coming, not a payday someday? Do we share the gospel with others out of love and concern for their lost souls because we know this is the judgment they are facing? i close with Edwards. Here's what he said in that sermon. And listen to this. Natural men are held in the hand of God over the pit of hell. I'll just read that right there. <laughs> and it'll be enough. They have deserved the fiery pit and are already sentenced to it. And God is dreadfully provoked. His anger is as great towards them as to those that are actually suffering the executions of the fierceness of his wrath in hell. And they have done nothing in the least to appease or abate that anger. Neither is God in the least bound by any promise, here it is, to hold them up at one moment. The devil is waiting for them. Hell is gaping for them. The flames gather and flash about them and would fain lay hold on them and swallow them up. The fire pent up in their own hearts is struggling to break out and they have no interest in any mediator. There are no means within reach that can be security to them. In short, they have no refuge. Nothing to take hold of. All that preserves them every moment is the mere arbitrary will and uncovenanted, unobliged forbearance of an angry God. This is the case of every one of you that are out of Christ. Every one of you who rejected Jesus Christ. That world of misery, that lake of burning brimstone is extended abroad under you. And there is a dreadful pit of the glowing flames of the wrath of God. There is hell's wide gaping mouth open and you have nothing to stand upon nor anything to take hold of there is nothing between you and hell but the air it is only the power and pleasure of God that holds you up if God should withdraw his hand they would avail you no more than keep you to keep you from falling than the air to hold up a person that is suspended on him Your wickedness has made you, as it were, heavy as lead and to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf and your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and best contrivance and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would to have a falling rock. How could you hear the words of the Savior of Hebrews and the words of this great preacher, not this great preacher, but this great preacher, and leave here without knowing that you know that you know that Jesus Christ is your surety, He is your Savior, He is your mediator, and He is your Lord.
Because Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount by speaking of the two different endings for us all. Those who hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And then he says to those who, the goats at the great judgment day, he says, depart from me, you who work iniquity, I never knew you. Friends, have you come to a place in your life where if today were the day when you stood before your maker, let you know you'd be in Christ and that heaven would be your home. Let's pray. Father, this is a solemn and frightening reality. I pray for this congregation that everyone within the hearing of my voice would know Jesus Christ, that they would be ready to meet their maker. And that, Lord, they would have such concern for their neighbors, their lost neighbors and their lost loved ones, that they would go today and talk to them about this one who loved us and gave himself up for us. And the reality of your judgment they face and warn them. But tell them about Jesus. Tell them the old, old story of Jesus and his love for sinners. God, give us grace to think upon these things now as we go throughout this day. We pray all this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our sovereign Lord, our Savior, and our almighty King. Amen.